I'm Angela Kelly Robeck, host of the Empowered Principal Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, everyone. I just want to let you know about a new podcast that I think you will really like by my friend Jeff Eichler. You know him from his other podcast, Getting Unstuck, and the book Shifting, How School Leaders Can Create a Culture of Change. Jeff's new podcast venture is called Cultivating Resilience, a whole community approach to alleviating trauma in schools. It is a podcast series that showcases thought leaders, school leaders, and mental health providers who are working to lessen the devastating impact of the trauma that students bring with them through the schoolhouse doors. You can get there in the following ways. Go to the link in the show notes. Go to my webpage at stephenmaletto.com. Just click on the podcast art for cultivating resilience. Or go to your favorite podcast station like Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, Stitcher, etc. And find the browser search button and type in cultivating resilience. I think you're going to enjoy this. Thanks for listening and have fun learning. The holidays are on their way. And they can be a particularly stressful time of year if you don't have a plan. Well, have I got a solution for you. Join my friend Lynn with ConnectFlow Grow and her launch of Stress Less Holidays. Through this live Zoom webinar, Lynn will teach you how to evaluate your stress and develop a plan to reduce it. This is an abbreviated version of her 21-day Stress Less Challenge to give you the best tools in the shortest time frame. A less stress holiday is priceless. Your investment of $17 per person or $2,500 flat rate per organization is the first step towards taking control of holiday stress. Learn more about Stressless Holidays and join by going to my website, stephenmaletto.com sponsors. Click on the ConnectFlow Grow logo and the link will take you to where you can find out more information and sign up. Time for you to stress less during the holidays. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Francis Schoonmaker, author of The Last Crystal Trilogy, an historical fantasy for middle grade and young adult readers. And by the way, anyone who just loves an adventure. She taught elementary school for a bunch of years and directed the graduate elementary and middle school teacher program at Teachers College Columbia University for over 20 years. What an awesome conversation. Her books are incredible reads. Lots of fun. Lots of adventure. You're going to love them. Thanks for listening. And by the way, before you go, it would be so nice if you would go to my website, stephenmaletto.com reviews and rate and review the podcast. Could you do that for me? Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. Boone Titanium Rings, found on the web at boonrings.com, is an affiliate partner of Teaching Learning Leading K-12. And I'm also a customer. I have this really cool ring that's got these carved pistons and, and stars in it. I love it. They make rings of titanium that are carved, laser cut, and engraved, as well as they have inlays of many types of materials like meteorite, acrylic, wood, carbon fiber, and so many other types. They also have special collections that are incredible designs. One of the top sellers are the Gamer Rings, the Stealth Series, and the Black Zirconium. As a note, they also make earrings, pendants, cufflinks, and for you musicians, they make cool trumpet mouthpieces. Love it. Go to boonrings.com and at checkout, use my code, capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, number 12, and you'll get 10% off your purchase. So go check them out. I love my ring, and I know that you will love yours. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show.
After teaching elementary school for a dozen years, Frances Schoonmaker directed the Graduate Elementary and Middle School Teacher Education Program at Teachers College, Columbia University, for nearly 20 years, drawing heavily on children's literature and storytelling. Publications for children include five books in the Sterling Poetry for Young People series and Growing Up Caring, Values and Decision Making with Glencoe uh, McMillan. Schoonmaker draws on her background of growing up in rural Oklahoma to furnish vivid details of place and context. As a child, she was fascinated by stories told by pioneer grandparents and exploring the remains of the dugout where her mother was born. In the black alabaster box, she makes room for both fact and fancy. Schoonmaker has taught, lectured, and consulted internationally. She holds degrees from the University of Washington, George Peabody College, Vanderbilt University, and Teachers College, Columbia University. Upon retirement, she was awarded the title of Professor Enrita. She resides in Baltimore, Maryland with her family. Uh, Francis, welcome to the show and glad you're here and say hi to everyone. Hi, I'm really pleased to be here. Well, glad to have you here. And uh, real quick, I want to do a little uh, summary of the, the Last Crystal Trilogy and, and uh, then we're going to go from there. The Last Crystal Trilogy, which we're going to focus on today, is historical fantasy for middle grade young adult readers and anyone who loves an adventure. A recipient of the Agatha Award, author Frances Schoonmaker, an educator of 25 years, shares insightful coming-of-age messages while she spins an amazing tale that helps young readers appreciate history when imagining other eras. The multidimensional story spans 100 years and two world wars, starting on the Santa Fe Trail in 1856 and ending on the famous Santa Fe Chief Train in 1946. None of the children in the trilogy have ever heard of The Last Crystal or its life-giving water until they are drawn into a magical quest to save it. History comes to life as they face life-threatening circumstances and have to decide whether they will take action or cave into despair. A, a, a theme in this coming-of-age story is that there are some things only a child can do because children can imagine impossibilities that adults fail to see, says Schoonmaker. Francis, it is great to have you on the show, and I got to say this, on your Twitter description, you note that you love adventure. Could you share a little bit about this? I could. I, the thing that comes to mind is uh, Tolkien, when Bilbo Baggins sets out his foot out the door, and, and he says the road goes ever on, down from the road where it began. And, um, I think just from the earliest years in growing up, um, I've always wanted to know what was over the next hill. That's awesome. I like that. That's really cool. And and so did you go on lots of little adventures and stuff like that on your own as a kid? Or Well, of course, as a kid, I had three brothers and um, two brothers. There were three of us. And, um, you know, we were fortunate to grow up on a farm for most of our growing up. We started out in the city uh, during World War Two and um, then moved to the farm and had that opportunity and, you know, to travel around free create your own adventure. <laughs> and then I think um, because our family migrated west, we always made those trips an adventure. You know, we kept the farm and we always came back to that because that's where family um, could always be found. But um, we'd make our trips an adventure. And I've just always wanted to find out more about people and interesting places and, and have had a wonderful opportunity to do that with my career. That's very cool, especially because something I, <laughs> you know, as I was looking into what you've done over your career and all this stuff, I mean, you, you go from growing up in the middle of the country to going to the West Coast and end up on the East Coast, you know. <laughs> That's My mother used to say she had children scattered from sea to shining sea. 
Nice, nice. <laughs> That's fine. Good stuff. Hey, so let's let's kind of start shifting about and talking about writing. Uh, what's missing from middle grade YA fiction books today? What do you think? Well, first of all, I'd have to say there are some really wonderful books being written for children and young people, and I wouldn't in any way want to discredit that. I, uh, you know, you can Google it, and it's just daunting. You can't read all of them. Um, but I do think that children are being influenced so much by the um, sort of the in- Avengers mentality. Now, you know, I can watch a good Avengers movie and enjoy it as much as, as the next one without too much guilt. But the the image that we're getting through those is that we've got to kill them before they kill us. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have superheroes who are going to save us. And I think children are getting too much violence. The other thing is I think that um, because there's so much competition in writing and so many people are writing, self-publishing is, I think, a positive thing. A lot of things are out there. Uh, people are more and more writing by a formula. So, and it, so it's harder to be published unless you match that formula, which can be helpful in, in some ways, but it can also be constraining and, and um, maybe harness creativity a little too much. That's interesting, because that's something that, uh, you know, um, just a side note, I, one of the things that I've, and it probably happened to me because of uh, reading uh, when my child, well, when the Harry Potter books first came out, mm-hmm. um, all the, my oldest was very young, and, uh, um, and my mother-in-law wanted to buy him the books, and he's, avid reader from very young and and but so many adults were so excited about these books i'm like okay i need to read these first (laughs) let me Mm -hmm. let me read this first and find out what this is all about and and it was pretty cool reading something that you know kind of flowed along i guess it's written like on a sixth grade level or something like this and and i'm like this is nice because you're talking to someone at those days i read lots of tom clancy that's very heavy in in information before all the thrilling stuff happens and all that. And, and, uh, I was like, this is, this is kind of nice read at this level. So as a point, it kind of infected me with this desire once in a while to read books that are like that. And one of the things I've noticed is that a lot of times YA authors, and I don't like these, uh, will just interject a lot of adult type theme stuff into something that's supposed to be a YA. I was wondering what you thought about that. Right. I don't think we have to force kids to grow up too fast. I mean, I think having a childhood is, a luxury that we've enjoyed for the past 100 years. But um, before that, you know, if you go through any any graveyard, you will find uh, tombstones of little children. They weren't expected to live beyond the fifth year. Everybody has in their family tree children who died very young. And, and the whole notion of, of early childhood and childhood in a protected time is, is pretty special. Um, and it seems to me there's so many things that are forcing kids to be like those children in the paintings that were done, you know, <laughs> Renaissance painting of all the kids look like grownups. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you know, we won't name any name brands, but kids now, you know, they can go out and you can buy stuff and they look just like an adult. <laughs> <laughs> of course, they want to. And I'm not saying, you know, we should keep all children in button shoes and long lacy gowns for any, by any means. But, um, you know, to be able to be a kid and to play and to imagine 
is such a precious thing. And I don't, I don't think that we necessarily need to push that. I don't think we have, we can hide them from the world around them, but um, yeah, I, I like a good story that, that doesn't complicate them too much with, um, with some of the burdens of adulthood. Yeah, it's it's cool because uh, you know it's to, to stay, you don't have to go near those topics, and I thought that's what was neat about, uh, some, especially the earlier um, Potter books. And then um, I'm a fan of Star Wars and Star Trek, and they're all they're a YA series that center on those where they get straight to the action. You know, they just <laughs> they're just boom, 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 and you know it, it's pretty cool because you you miss some of the more heavy parts of stories and stuff like this. You have to remember about Harry Potter is that J.K. Rowling actually did a book a year and those books grow with the kids and you know my daughter i think very wisely would not allow my granddaughter to read them until each year so that she was really ready for the content by the time you get to the final books so you know that's something to think about too i mean you read the first one you want to read the second one right yes yes most <laughs> definitely and i, I, I she like had that. to go through and then all her her friends at school are saying well this happened and that happened and she's saying don't tell me <laughs> just just as a note it's what shut up but just <laughs> as a note you wonder if that'll ever happen again because that was like it was like lightning where that struck where yeah it it you know kids grew up with that series and it's kind of yeah. cool, as opposed to it being available on the shelf. So just like you're saying, you could literally ruin somebody's day by going, I, look, I don't want to hear. Stop. Go away. You don't, I, I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> anyway. Right. So that's what a funny thing. You know, one of the things that uh, I've got to make sure we talk about is, uh, can you talk a little bit about how a writer, teacher, parent can inspire young minds, you know, to consume books and explore the depths of their imagination and curiosity and enjoyment? I mean, let's go there for a little bit read to them. <laughs> One of my um, uh, mentors and uh, someone I, whose uh, opinion I really treasure is Dorothy Strickland, who was at Teachers College, Columbia University, and, and one of my mentors. And she used to say that absolutely the proven method for getting kids to read is the LAP method. Get them on your lap and read to them. <laughs> I like that. That's awesome. <laughs> So, and the other thing that teachers can do besides um, trying to have some read aloud time and providing books to read is to read books that kids recommend to them and, you know, to honor their choices. Sometimes you'll like that a lot and sometimes you'll think, oh, well, <laughs> I need to read this. It's an assignment. And then to give them uh, creative ways to interpret what they're reading and interpret the world around them. I think it's been very difficult because of um, the way schools have moved to a more standardized approach to educating. Um, it's, been, it's been more difficult for teachers to carve out um, what Philip Phoenix, who is another one of my teachers, used to call um, carve out spaces for wholeness in the classroom. And the more you can carve out those spaces, around the curriculum you're required to teach, the better for kids. Um, one of my heartbreaks was um, seeing the difference in kindergarten that my granddaughter had as compared to what my daughter had. Because most of those materials that stimulated imagination and creativity and inventiveness had been cleared out of the room. Um, and Kids need that. 
So if they don't get it at school, then parents can provide that at home. And, and good teachers really try to make it happen. They still do. That's awesome. I like it. You know, it's, it's funny because when I was reading your books and when I think about this, this, this whole subject, um, now I did the TV to TV sparked my interest in some other things. And so, uh, because I, at the time I could watch reruns of, uh, the Mickey mouse club, which on the Mickey mouse club, they showed spin and Marty and, um, the, um, Disney had had that, uh, series with the, the Hardy boys and which, there were so many of those little stories that I liked that that made that I wanted to read the books, and so that that sent me to the library, and I started checking out those books, and and as a result of that, my friends and I kind of got into this whole little, you know, clue finders club. Type. <laughs> we made our own little, used our imagination to create our own little uh, um, solving the mystery type thing, and I think I think about some of the imagination stuff that people want to want to lay everything out for kids as opposed mm-hmm. to encourage them to use those imaginations. Right. Name their toys before they buy them. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> uh, you, you know, one of the things I got, you know, today we're focused on your trilogy, The Last Crystal. Uh, mm-hmm. What was your, what was your inspiration? Because before this, you've written a lot of poetry for children, right? Well, um, I've written a lot of poetry. I haven't published a lot of poetry. I have, however, collected poems of great poets and organized them into books and written an essay about the the poet for kids and, and the Sterling Poetry for Young People series has uh, five books that I did. And that was a real treat. <laughs> so, but the question about the trilogy, you'll have to repeat that. Oh, not a problem. I, no, I was just saying, uh, what was your original inspiration for the trilogy? I mean, what? what... Okay. <laughs> uh, it's something that happened a long time ago, and it was one of those... Um, puzzles that you haven't, you know, that keeps nagging at you. Um, The family made a, uh, my husband and daughter and I made a cross-country trip from Baltimore to Sacramento, California in the car. And we were still speaking to each other at the end of the trip. (laughs) uh, (laughs) But but I met an uncle-in-law for the first time and he told me how he and his little brother were put on the train every summer in Kansas City to go to Sacramento to be with family, the two of them, little guys by themselves on the train. (laughs) At this point, you know, I had been teaching and I taught, uh, you know, kindergarten through fifth grade. And I just kept thinking, gosh, two little guys on the train. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of mischief, you know, would they get into? And, you know, my imagination kind of carried me away. I, there's so many things contributed to it, you know, and I, 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 read a lot of Carl Sandburg to classes that I taught. And I kept thinking how he created the rutabaga stories because he thought, you know, too many kids growing up in the U S were exposed to princesses and castles and things in Europe. And we needed our own, you know, mythologies. (laughs) uh, So, you know, I thought about that. I thought, you know, what would a quest be like? And, And then plus just, if you've ever traveled, made that trip, we, you go through some pretty, wild country and thinking, well, what would happen if the car broke down? What would happen if the train broke down? (laughs) So I, I didn't have time to, um, to attend to it until, um, till later. And when I began trying to write it, I couldn't think of a motive powerful enough to drive a quest in the wilderness. 
And it wasn't until really probably about 10 years ago, I was working on a project for the college in um, Pakistan and made friends with um, a jeweler. Uh, I wasn't buying lots of jewels, but I, I loved going there and he repaired some things for me. And yes, I did buy some things. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I loved talking to him and, and hearing him talk about his work and how he did it. One time I went in, there was nobody in the shop. And he said, come here, I want you to see this. And he pulled out from um, behind the case this um, rock that was about as big as his hand. And it was highly polished. And you can look down into it. And here was this bubble of water. And we were just thinking, wow, you know, how old is this water? How did it get there? <laughs> and, and, and he said, you know, I'm never going to I'm never going to sell this. And he had traded somebody for it. And I don't know, it hit me not long after that. Wow, that, you know, the last crystal water from the dawn of time and, you know, that could heal and repair the world or it could keep you young. And, you know, that fountain of youth is just a powerful motivator. And, um, you know, it sent people looking for the fountain of youth. It's it, it keeps people buying wrinkle cream. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, so I, I when I finally had something that would drive the quest, I actually wrote book three. And then um, I kept thinking, yes, but how come? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? And my daughter, who is a theater uh, major, uh, said, well, you know, an actor has to create a backstory for their character and you act out of that backstory, whether it ever comes out or not. So what's your backstory? Well, I ended up with three books and then of course I had to rewrite the third one because <laughs> it had to, <laughs> you know, it cool. had to match the others, but because I had started the story on the Santa Fe chief train, it made sense to start on the Santa Fe trail. And it also kept it close to home. You know, one bit of advice you always hear is write what you know. And, um, you know, I do know that area, um, so it was a natural to to create the stories within a context that was familiar. So that's how it came about. Very cool. That's neat, and it's kind of, it's really cool that you you'd finished the the third book and then went back and did the backstory and then said, "Whoop, I got to change some things." In the <laughs> yeah, yeah, they had, you know, it all had to match, and and that also gives you a clue that I'm not one of those people who outlines. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. <laughs> I uh, I tend to be the one who always wrote my term paper, then created the outline, and then went back and you know did the editing. That's awesome. <laughs> I was gonna yeah I was gonna ask you if you're an outliner or if you're somebody who just uh, lets your imagination go and figures out where you go from there. You answered that question. I like that. That's yeah. that's cool. So that's pretty interesting that you did that with your uh, term papers too, though. I <laughs> I it just uh, I I have to tell you I did it with my doctoral dissertation as well. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> I'd like that. <laughs> I, <laughs> that's awesome. I wish I'd known how to do it that way because I, I, my outline wasn't helping me any. <laughs> so <laughs> that's good stuff. It, you know, it, one of the things that uh, in your first book, The Black Alabaster Box, which, yeah, I guess it ultimately, because your first book was, you know, becomes your third book. And never mind, I'm just trying to be funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> in, in your first book, The Black Alabaster Box, Grace and her family are getting ready to set out on an adventure with a wagon train. And they're heading west, and she sees this. And so I'm reading, reading from the book. 
They watched from her hiding places as strangers hauled off one precious thing after another. By the end of the day, the house was completely empty. It was no longer their house. Somebody bought it, too. This is so cool. Throughout your books, you have awesome imagery that kids and adults can relate to. I mean, what do you do to help you create these pictures? You know, like with this. I mean, I can feel her anxiety because she's sitting there with the dog and they kind of go underneath the house as people are hauling away stuff that they've sold in an auction and things. And she realizes this house is no longer theirs. I mean, she's leaving a whole world behind. I mean, and that's so cool because it just, you feel it. And throughout, you, you do awesome with the imagery. Well, I'm so glad. I think what I, I do is I try to empathize with the character. Um, and, of course, we all um, write out of deep places in ourselves. And I know what it is like to, you know, to leave things and people that you love behind. Um, so, you, you know, you tap into that. And um, I do have to say this about the dog, though, because it's a little, it comes back to process. <laughs> I'm going off the grid here. That's all right. <laughs> uh, you know, being a, a trained in historical research and a researcher, when I finished the black alabaster box, I, I somehow wasn't ready to share the last crystal, even though I'd written it. And and but when I finished the black alabaster box, I decided I would pilot it with some kids. So I got some classrooms where the teachers were willing to read it. One of them happened to be the classroom where my granddaughter was a fifth grader. And um, the kids were really helpful. I knew I was on the right track when my granddaughter came home and said, they're threatening to break my pencils if I don't tell them what happened next. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, I didn't introduce the magical element until about um, a third of the way through the book. And then it it came because I love it, you know, when you're going one way and then suddenly there's a surprise and like, oh, yes, <laughs> did not like that. <laughs> <laughs> And in fact, some of them were angry. And this happened in not just one classroom. Uh, some of the kids were like, oh, ooh, this is cool. But some of them was like, uh-uh. <laughs> so I realized I had to have an advanced organizer. And as I was, tr was struggling with how to introduce the first book and let people know there was magic afoot. And one of my friends, who was a critical reader for me, said, well, what about old Shep, the dog? And the do Grace's dog, old Shep, she said, why couldn't he be a time traveler? Well, there we were. And so he goes across all three books. So uh, <laughs> this is cool, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that, especially in the beginning, you know, in the, at the in the first chapter, it begins with the old Shep showing up at, at the door and he's not been there for several years. And, and they speculate about it. it can't be the same dog because dogs don't live they, that long. And so anyway. Yeah, I love that whole discussion right there, because it's like right off the bat, you kind of introduce us to something's different in this story here. This is, there's something about this dog and, uh, you know, there's something at magic afoot. <laughs> yes. And there's a whole discussion about, well, you'd have to be in dog years, a hundred and some years older, you know, and and I love the there's a little scene you do with the um, something about the broken paw or leg and and that would have healed. And the dog holds up its paw. <laughs> I, I, I love <laughs> I love stuff like that. So it's like, yes, this is cool. So, and you know, I, I think one of the things, I don't know if this, this is the case or not, but with me, you kind of tapped in the idea that it would have been really cool to have had uh, one of the, one of my first dogs to kind of enjoy the journey of life with me. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
And uh, that kind of taps into that when the dog is everywhere, you know, <laughs> yeah. in, with the character. So I like that. That's cool. Because uh, that's what it made me think about. Oh, that would have been cool. If, you know. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I think is interesting is, can you talk a little bit about why a former elementary school teacher is, you know, like in the perfect position to write exciting books filled with danger and discovery for kids? I mean, why, why did your world as an elementary teacher help make that possible for you? Well, uh, first of all, I mean, we all have gifts and some people are going to be storytellers and some people are going to be artists and some people are going to be really, you know, quizzes at mathematical problem solving. <laughs> and, and so if you happen to be one of those storyteller people, it's great because you're around kids, you, you know what they, how they think. Um, and if you get to know them deeply, um, you really respect that. And I, I could tell you hundreds of stories about kids that I've taught who, you know, who just made me stop in my tracks. Nice. <laughs> so when you think about them um, and you have a, a story idea, you know, it, it, it's easy. I mean, I'm, right now, for some reason, what popped in my mind is a, a little boy whose name was James. And I didn't make that connection and it may not even be there the uh, protagonist in the second book is named James, but James was staring out into space. And he, as an educator, you know that teachers are not allowed to let students stare out in space. You know, they're supposed to be productive time on task all the time. And so I went over to him and tried in a very gentle way to say, well, James, what are you doing? And he looked at me and he said, I'm thinking. <laughs> I thought, well, we don't want that in school. <laughs> nice, nice. That's funny. You know, so if you're if you have worked with kids and you spend your days with kids, then that's a great position. Um, if you happen to be a storyteller, um, from which you know to draw. That's awesome because that it's so real. I mean, I I taught uh, for a long time. I, I this is my. 34th, I just finished my 34th year in public education, and part of that's teacher, part of that's uh, administrator and principal and stuff like that. But the more you're, you're around kids, you see how the, the behaviors and such, which, as a note, is part of the reason why when I read books or I, I watch TV or movies, and it's like, have you ever been around kids? <laughs> I'm not sure you got that in the character <laughs> no here. No one if you saw one. <laughs> right, exactly. But you know, the question I get... Uh, as, as often as the one you've just asked is, well, why would a, uh, a person who's been teaching at the university want to write a book for kids? Nice. And my immediate answer to that is always, well, who would you want to write them? <laughs> nice. Yeah, that, that's cool. That's, uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's funny because, it, you know, if you think about it, when you interact, because there's, you know, there's so many different things when, when you're working with kids that, and, and one of the things I try and do is, uh, in, in the job that I have now is I, I work with, um, I, I wear many hats, but one of the things I've created for myself is teachers who struggle. I, I go in and try and help them figure out how to fix what they're working on. So I teach classroom management and then I go and observe them and I give them some feedback and stuff like this. And, and uh, one of the things that's really interesting is when you run into adults who really don't get that you got to have a sense of humor when you're working with kids because <laughs> mm -hmm. there's a thing that it's just kid behavior. And, and I'm talking yeah. about making excuses. I'm talking about, there are things that they do and it's, they take it personal and it's not, it's not directed towards them. It's, it's what they do as a kid. So just like you were saying, he's not staring off in space. He's thinking. <laughs> I'm thinking about things. <laughs> you know, that's, that's so cool. Cause you know, it's as a, as a kid, I, I learned of, 
I taught myself an interesting lesson, which was if, uh, I don't know how to say this without, <laughs> I, you know, one of the things I, I got really good at is uh, I didn't want to be called to the board. So I, I learned, I taught myself some good behaviors that most, that most people allowed me to play in the classroom, which was I'll sit in a certain area of the classroom, not too far up, not too far back, kind of over center right. And if you, uh, and I will, I told my friends, do not bother me when we're in class. I said, do not ask me any questions, do not talk with me. And I learned that as long as I'm looking at the teacher and I could be drawing anything on my, <laughs> on my notebook. And under uh, the radar. <laughs> and under the radar, exactly. I, I'm good. And that was, that was my thing. And, you know, I could, I easily could become one of those characters. So, <laughs> but anyway, good stuff. I, I, you know, one of the things that uh, your, your books have historical settings. I mean, did you have a reason besides, did you have a reason there, I guess is my point. Uh, for placing them, uh, they, uh, there are three epic periods, the Great Western Migration, World War One, and World War Two, And, you know, every story has a context. Because this is fantasy, I could very easily have invented the context. But it seemed to me, and this was the educator nudging me, yeah. it seemed to me that this was a great opportunity to try to set the history right. And so I tried to find as much as I could about the new scholarship, and it's so interesting. And of course we'll learn more and they'll be outdated, you know, because we'll know more in, in 10 years. And and yet I, I can hold my head up saying, but but that's good, We're, it's always evolving. And, and it's like lead, reading the Little House on the Prairie books. I think um, the it was absolutely right to remove the Laura Ingalls Wilder title from those books. And, but the American Library Association was very specific in saying, but they should be read. And they should be read because they're important and related to an era. And they become fuel for really important discussion. So I wanted to, on the Great Westward Migration, I wanted to think about what, what really were the threats to people. Um, and, you know, I read uh, diaries. I read um, articles, um, and you know, it's interesting now having come through or still in the throes of a pandemic, um, that smallpox was such an issue um, in that era, and cholera, and people, people died on the trail of those two diseases in particular. And they died from uh, gun wounds, but not because Native Americans were firing the guns, because, you know, they were having gun accidents. So I, I wanted um, to do my little bit to help kids see in a way that, I guess, that would, might catch them unaware uh, what life was like. And... And the second book takes place during World War I, right at the height of American patriotism before we entered World War I. And so not only did I want to place the character in a small rural town in Oklahoma, because I know those towns, but it was a great opportunity to explore pacifism and what happened to German-American immigrants who were loyal Americans um, when there was so much emphasis on, you know, buying war bonds, um, signing up. And so it seemed to me that each of those epic eras 
there was an opportunity through placing it in an authentic context rather than inventing um, a history um, to help kids learn some things um, that they didn't think they wanted to know. <laughs> That's cool. That's, you know, and it, it's, and see, I love historical settings, like, especially when, uh, when they get a chance to, because that's something that always has fascinated me in history. Part of the reason why uh, I pursued the degrees and wanted to teach history is that I'm fascinated by people of the times because of the, you know, what they're living through and what's part of their world. And, and that makes it a difficult or, you know, e even in the, the thought of we're on top of the world, man, how could it get any better than this? You know, or, or the opposite yeah. of that, which is it's got to be something better. <laughs> and, yeah. and it drove people to do you know, all kinds of cool things. And I, because I'm fascinated in the, um, I got a lot of different time frames that I love, but in U.S. history, I, I'm fascinated in the, uh, my father was born in, uh, in the late 20s. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so that era is, is, is rather neat to me because uh, he comes up in a time in, uh, in Chicago where, uh, you know, if you're an Italian, Eh, they kind of associate you with one thing yeah. <laughs> and uh, one or two things, maybe the clothing industry a little bit, but, uh, or, <laughs> or something like that, but <laughs> something more diversified. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, uh, um, and so there's interesting stories around that. And, uh, and I always thought it would be cool because at, at some point my father becomes a, um, learns how to play the trumpet and ends up playing in a, in bands inside uh, juke joints or whatever they call, <laughs> you know, the, yeah. um, yeah. There's uh, the, the parlors and all kinds of stuff like that. And talk about wanting to be a fly on the wall. So like your time travel thing would fit right there. I'd want to be able to go back then and see him interacting. Uh, and uh, I just think, and it's just, you know, many reasons, not only just because he becomes my father eventually, but also just the, how that world was. You know? Why? How come they did things? And, you know, one of the things I did um, was I illustrated um, the books. I just, just little icons at the beginning of each chapter. And I did that for very selfish reasons. I, I just hated it as a kid when people drew pictures of pictures of characters and they didn't match what I imagined. <laughs> I I, there are some wonderful gifted artists, but I just didn't want anybody drawing these characters. That's funny. And, and even on the covers, they're blurred. So you don't really, you can't really see them. But in, in doing that, that became another window back into the history because then I, it would lead me to ask, wait a minute. And <laughs> in the second book, I have them listening to the news on the radio. And I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> they didn't have the radio. Nice. <laughs> they didn't have the radio back on the farm, <laughs> you know, during World War One. This, <laughs> So, you know, there were all these little um, sources of triangulation of my research. And, you know, then what was the slang? Did they say, gosh, darn? <laughs> right, right. You know, when did some of these expressions come up? And what was it that you used if you wanted to insult somebody? Uh, if, you know, if you were in 1856, as opposed to, um, you know, 1946. So <laughs> all well, those, uh, you know, placing it in historical context um, are to me are just fascinating. It, it is fascinating because, you know, you think about different aspects of it and, you know, it's uh, just like you said, this, see, that's the type of stuff that uh, really just kind of wows me is people being people in their daily lives, what was going on mm -hmm. and what, you know, 
those conversations that they had and stuff like that. And like, uh, let's, let's go back to my dad. So for example, part of my dad's world was he had to go through this extremely, uh, so he's Italian Catholic and, but he has to go through the Irish Catholic <laughs> area yeah, and which is very different. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And there were these Irish gangs he had to contend with. And, um, so he had some fascinating stories and, uh, and, uh, uh, issues with nuns and and monks and <laughs> the brothers yeah. and, and and brothers being the you know the uh, the monks and uh, um and just just stuff that and so I can only imagine what because uh, basically eventually um my uh, grandmother his mom tells me these stories about him which he told me he said you know I'm not gonna let you keep talking to her <laughs> but you know it it turned it caused him to make sure that you know he's gonna he's gonna come out winning <laughs> and yeah. uh, and yeah. so that type of stuff makes you go like well what what was he saying and what were they talking and what were they doing and i just i love that type of uh, you know what if and be the fly in the wall and you know can i have a dog that time travels <laughs> so, <laughs> so i love it the uh, so i just love the fact that and i think it's neat that you're you're delving into all that with uh, learning just like you said oops can't have a radio there you know <laughs> and you know the thing is when the reader goes through that there shouldn't be anything that disrupts the way they're reading it. You know, um, they shouldn't stop and think, wait a minute, did they have radios <laughs> or, 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 you know, you can't really insert things that are disruptive. It has to just be a part of the context and it has to feel right. And as I said, I could have finessed a lot of those things, but I, I just personally, I, I, found that it, it was impossible for me to do that, which of course meant it took me longer. <laughs> that's, it, but that's cool. Cause that, that makes it so real. You know, it's funny. I, I, I think about, uh, you know, you, you, you know, part of your book visits world war one. Well, my, my mom's dad was, a, um, eventually in my, uh, my mom's dad's world. Um, he was a tanker and he was in, he was with tank with, uh, during world war two, he's in a tank with, uh, he's a, He's a tech sergeant with uh, a master sergeant with the uh, um, there with um, with Patton going through and uh, driving through in Europe. And what's interesting, though, is that his training started on horses <laughs> and there's these cool pictures <laughs> yeah. on horses. <laughs> and I just that in itself would have been so interesting. I, I recently found going through some uh, family documents, I found a document that shows when he finished his training of learning how to use the 50 caliber machine gun. <laughs> and, and I'm a former yeah. army soldier, I, which is kind of cool. I, it's just interesting seeing stuff like that. You know, the, um, uh, the prototype for the, the camps detaining the Japanese Americans was established during World War I when German Americans and Italian Americans were warehoused during the war. And, um, so they already had the model for how to do that when it came to World War II. And it was one of the things that made me want to include, um, just in passing, a soldier who was a part of the all Japanese um, infantry that went into Europe in World War II. Um, because, you know, there were many loyal Americans. And in, in The Last Crystal, he's on the train and he's on that train instead of a special troop train because he has leave and he wants to go see his dad, who along with a lot of other Japanese men from Hawaii were rounded up, sent to New Mexico and interred during the war while their sons were fighting. 
as um, members of the army. It's which, crazy. Yeah. Like you said, you know, like, like we were talking about, if you, you know, just understanding what was going on, and because uh, that impacted my family too. I mean, we ended up in the, the, the Italian side of it. Mm -hmm. um, but just it's just an interesting aspect of that world and what was that like and the fears and all kinds of stuff. I mean, you know, one of the things that, you know, you talk about radio when that comes about, um, how important it had to become in some people's lives. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, because that's how they, they found out what was going on. You know, the newsreels at the f films and stuff like this and just anything just <laughs> about those types of worlds. And it's cool that you study that to try and include it in your in your stories, because that's uh, that's who people were, what was going on and what kind of made their lives. I don't I don't know. I could babble about that forever. I don't mean to. <laughs> Good stuff. But, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I, I, I want to shift into your second book, I mean, and just pull something out of there. I mean, part of your stories deal with time travel. And here's something I'm going to read from your second book, The Red Abalone Shell. Remember, time is different here, laughed Mr. Nichols. <laughs> you haven't been keeping track of the time, but I have. They were tearful goodbyes. I suppose you'll be 10 years older than me when I get to come back, said James. You never know, said Gracie, wiping her eyes. Mr. Nichols says time is different here. Maybe you'll be older. One, you'll be the older one then. Why do you think time travel, I mean, uh, no, done with reading. I mean, wh why do you think time travel is a way to get readers interested in stories? Oh, I think it's just the, the search for the unknown. You know, the, uh, it's, it's the same reason that um, kids want to fly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's uh, you were talking about being the fly on the wall. And for me, I used time travel because it was the only way um, that I could um, structure the story around the quest. And, um, but it also um, took me into trying to find out something I was totally ignorant of, and that was what the, who the coastal native people were who came to the Americas um, in, in what we would call prehistoric times, but you know they certainly had their own histories. And looking into what life of Chumash people uh, would have been like. Um, so being able to go back into time and think about it and experience a whole different um, way of life, I think is, is inviting and interesting. And, you know, just think of the stories of time machines and <laughs> back into the future. Okay. Most definitely. <laughs> and if you pick up a rock, does that change history? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> All, all just very you, know, you can get all caught up in all kinds of stuff one of my one of my favorite uh now whenever i say this i i just hope that uh um people watch them but the uh you know i'm a big fan of the original star trek series from the 60s oh, and yes. <laughs> and uh one of my favorite episodes is where they actually come into earth um and they they're seen in the sky by a, a fighter jet pilot who's like whoa and they um, Spock realizes they're going to have to find him because he's seen them when they go down to Earth, and they have to make un get him to unsee them. <laughs> and because it could change things. It could change things exactly, and it's like uh, uh, what a, just that all those concepts themselves, you know. The uh, yeah. but uh, good stuff. But yeah, and that's what's kind of cool. Not kind of cool. That's one of the things that's neat about uh, your stories here is that uh, it does make you think. You know, if if you could string out this. You know, you're going back and forth, or not back and forth, but you're you're in the different times, and I don't know. I just 
I'm getting into your stories. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed them. <laughs> I did. You know, um, can we talk a little bit about how you develop your characters? And are any of them you? Oh, they probably all are me in some respect. <laughs> Even the ones I wouldn't like to be. Um, there's there's a sense in which, um, you know, you do write out of aspects of yourself. But, uh, you know, some of them are very consciously um, based on people I have known, uh, Mr. Nichols, uh, the uh, fellow who turns out to be um, one of the immortals in, in the two immortals that are in the story, is um, really modeled on my older brother in terms of his stature and, and the way he talks as an adult, um, you know, living in Lawrence, Kansas, as he does. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I do um, borrow from him certain aspects. Um, in The Last Crystal, I think I'm probably more like Mary Carroll. And I did deliberately draw on the name of a, a childhood friend um, who's passed now. But um, I drew on that. And, and I think probably, you know, Mary Carroll is admittedly bossy. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, <laughs> and is a planner and organizer. And um, sometimes they go right and sometimes they don't. But um, the, the two characters, I've never quite decided where they came from, except out of a generalized past were Ruby and Junior. And Ruby and Junior are um, the outlaws you love to hate. Um, and they start in the first book as just bullies who are making life miserable for Grace on the trail. And, and, and they came about because I had written the first book, but I felt it was too heavy because some really tragic things happen in the book. And I don't back away from it, but I try very hard not to splash blood on people, uh, you know, to be so graphic that um, it um, causes people to have nightmares. Um, and I was thinking, you know, I've got to lighten this up somehow. And I, and I was actually visiting my brother in Lawrence, and I was sitting in his dining room you know, at my computer thinking, and all of a sudden I, this scene came in my head and, and I do sort of see things as scenes or, you know, like a play or a movie or something. And here are these two characters and it's in the scene where they first go into the cave and find the empty alabaster box. And I just broke out laughing because they were so funny. And then of course I built them back into the beginning of the story. So, <laughs> Which is nice, which is nice. You know, that's, that's why I say I don't work from an outline. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's cool because it makes things then happen. I, I think one of the things that's cool, if an author can deal with it, can, can control it, is that it yeah. makes then things happen kind of naturally and they fix it where it feels more naturally, I think. I don't know. You know it's right. it's kind of like one of my, um, you know, it, there's just so many, it, if you were, if you think about things that we take for granted today, that we do. And so I'll just use a movie for example. It's kind of cool that, I don't know if you saw it or not, but they, they recently had, you know, Godzilla versus Kong. But before that, they had the Kong movie that they had out where they were trying to bring these together. And they on purpose did the Kong movie in the early 70s, mid 70s, so they didn't have to deal with cell phones. <laughs> and, <Yeah. laughs> and I thought that was cool because this is not an advertisement for the movies, by the way. But the point is, is that, you know, it's it when you yeah. think when you think about stuff and technology and things, you know, just other stuff that uh, um, could change your story or make your story a little different or something like this, depending on what it is that's going on. I just think it's, it's kind of cool, the role they can play. 
You know, one of the things that I want to make sure that I, I talk about is that your books have action in them. That's really cool. And, uh, you know, because there's neat things going on. And so, for example, we get into this imagery again. And I've not, I've had my close encounters with snakes. <laughs> and memorable. They're, they're very memorable. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting because you suddenly have this one in, in, in your book. And I, and I got to read it because when you're, and this is what I, I want to say, when your story called for some action, like this confrontation from The Last Crystal, which involves a snake, J.D. put one rock in the slingshot, slowly pulled back the sling, and he took aim. The snake was making a sound like popcorn kernels in a tin pan. On the count of three, dropped the map and rolled it aside, away from each other. Then run for it. If he strikes, it should be at the map moving in front of him. Every movement J.D. made was steady and deliberate, though his heart was pounding. I mean, how'd you develop this scene? I mean, your description is so very real feeling. I Mine has not been with a rattlesnake. Mine's been with a couple different copperheads <laughs> near ponds when I was fishing. And I, and all of a sudden it's like the dog suddenly became alert to what was next yeah. to me, you know, and it's like, holy crud. And, you know, in each of these situations, I'm very surprised that I didn't end up with a dead dog. But yeah. uh, so I knew this, <laughs> this scene felt so real. Ta talk about your action, not just the snake, but I mean, you have lots of different action scenes where... You know, you, you, it feels real. I like it. Well, um, on this one, um, I, I did grow up in rattlesnake country, but I never had that kind of encounter. And, and I actually did a lot of research. I watched a lot of YouTubes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> pretty awful. People being dumb with snakes. <laughs> yeah, and I, um, and I read a lot about how a rattlesnake strikes and I learned a lot. It was fascinating. I mean, I didn't know that uh, one of the dangers is they can strike two thirds the length of their body. So, you know, you gotta be away, but I also learned, which I didn't know that they will strike at what's right in front. So then, so having those facts in mind, it was a matter of um, thinking how they would get out of that situation. And with the two in, in, in the scene, as it's set up, two children are sitting with their backs to this rock and they don't realize the snake has crawled up there to warm itself. And so they are really in peril. So what would you do if they move out of the way or do they sit there all day frozen until the snake moves? Right. <laughs> you know, and so the slingshot would be, you know, the way they handle it. So it was a matter of, of getting the facts understanding how it works and then building the drama, you know, so that, and I always figure if my heart's beating kind of fast, it's probably working. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. That's you know, funny. Beginning to, uh, but, um, but that's one of the technical things that happens with writing uh, right now. My granddaughter and I are reading uh, the fellowship of the ring by Tolkien, probably for the umpth time. I started telling her the story of the Hobbit when she was three or four, but laundering, bits that she wasn't ready for and but we're reading it this time it's really fun to stop and there's um, a situation where sam uh, picks up a rock and throws it and she said wait a minute isn't it interesting how tolkien has him doing this in a natural way and that later when he needs to throw a rock you know to save the day as it were uh, you don't say, oh, and by the way, he, you know, hobbits are really good at throwing rocks. And then you go on. It doesn't interrupt the action because Tolkien is already, you already know that about hobbits. And so when I was at that section, I realized that J.D. had to have a slingshot. 
And then I thought, well, wait a minute, he probably would have because boys had them. And um, then I built it in earlier because it would have been one of the tools that they, they would have helped the children survive when they're in the wilderness. And in what I'm working on now, I needed a slingshot and I thought, oh, great. You know, J.D. was really good with a slingshot. This is going to work. And then I thought, oh, no, I can't. They didn't have rubber then. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. So I've had to learn how to how how to use an actual you know David and the Giant and Goliath slingshot wow. where you, you know, whirl it around and sling and let it, let it go at the right yeah. time. But it, it's really you you know you find the facts, structure the scene, and then try to try to create the the drama of what would happen. You know, and I just try to think about it realistically. What would actually happen if you're in that situation? That's so cool. I, I just, I just know that, uh, you know, those types, you know, when you feel it like that, it's cool. I, I don't know how to describe it. It's just like, because mm-hmm. some writers, you, know, you, you read what, and you, and you may have to help them along in your mind <laughs> and you, you get where it's going. But when the yeah. writer has you where you feel it and like the snake thing, it immediately reminded me of the copper, the first copperhead, how I'm gotten out of it. And the dog is saved is I thought my stepfather lost his mind. I, you know, because I see the snake, the dogs, well, actually, I first see the dog. We're along this riverbank where we were uh, catching goofy fish, and uh, this, uh, the dog suddenly is growling, and it was a, it was a Doberman that we had and a, and a terrier. There's actually two of them in this, and they're, they're, uh, they're growling. And I'm, I'm like, they often would decide to mess with each other, right? So I'm thinking, this is, and I look over and I see what they're looking at. And then I look up and I see my stepfather with his gun <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, okay, he's going to shoot the dog. And it goes, I, and he shoots the snake. And the age yeah. I am at this time is probably like 11 to 12, somewhere in that range. And so I have no clue. I don't remember exactly how close everything was, but I sure remember that snake flying apart. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's yeah you would. <laughs> and the second one was the dog came to the rescue, grabbed the snake and shook it and threw it. And, yeah. you know, that was those, and those weren't in the same year, by the way, but <laughs> you know, and it's, and, but the, I feel the anxiety right now when I'm telling that story. I mean, you do. and yeah. that's cool when a writer does that to you. So kudos to you, by the way. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I was having flashbacks. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> But good stuff. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, um, I want to make sure that uh, I, I ask you is, uh, is this. Just can you tell your audience, I mean, can you tell my audience um, why they should read your trilogy, The Last Crystal Trilogy? You know, that's, that's a hard one to answer in that, you know, I think it's a great story and they'll love it and have fun. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I think the greatest reward to an author is, um, knowing that someone has read their work and, and has enjoyed it. And I realize that not every book is for every person. You know, there will be some uh, people who will read it and it won't touch the nerves that it touched for you. But um, I think it will for a lot of people and, and I'd like them to just have fun. Very cool. And I agree with you. I think they will. I think it will. Good. So great. I, I, by the way, do you have any more books on the way? I do. I'm working on one, and this comes out of the uh, piloting that I did. Um, and across more than one class, I was really flabbergasted when the kids said, could you make your next book, get them all the way to California, and, and, and don't worry about fantasy? 
I mean, we loved the fantasy. We liked it, you know, and 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 we wanted that. But couldn't we just have one about the, the history? Well, can, is, is that music to a historian's ears? That right. <laughs> so I thought, okay. And I take one of the characters from the Black Alabaster Box and uh, try to create his backstory and cool. why his family left to go uh, west because there were so many motivators. And because it's 1856, just prior to the Civil War, I locate them in southern Illinois. And he learns at the beginning of the book that they're um, a stop on the Underground Railway. And um, their their uh, position is compromised so that it's known that they are a stop and bounty hunters are, you know, watching them. And, you know, times are changing in Illinois. They decide to go west. And he thinks, okay you know, we're leaving all that behind us. And he, he discovers that, um, you know, unfortunately that uh, racism isn't left behind. Um, and it's been interesting to make him intersect with Grace because in the Black Alabaster Box, they're really close friends. You know, so I, I realized that we're telling a different side of, of the story and, and new things are happening that you don't learn about in the Black Alabaster Box, but it's a lot of fun. And one of the scenes I've struggled with was um, the cat rescuing them, rescuing them from a rattlesnake. And I'm thinking, do I have some kind of <laughs> phobia about snakes? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I need to work through here. <laughs> but I'm thinking about the dangers on the trail that you don't hear about because you hear about the ones that Hollywood, you know, made, right. uh, created in creating this fiction of what Travel West was actually like. That's that's cool to make a real. Well, obviously, they're characters <laughs> that you made up, but at the same time, still a more based on more real. Um, the reality is what I'm trying to say of, of yeah. the world um, backstory to connect intersect with your other characters, uh, and they're already there. And so, just kind of, I like that. That's awesome. That, that's cool. The kids ask for you know a more historical. Yeah, I was just so thrilled, you know, as a teacher and an educator that 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 was something that they wanted. So cool. It, yeah, kids, people got to give them more credit than they, just, than they give them sometimes. You know? <laughs> I love that. That's so cool. Uh, it, uh, Francis, before we close, if someone wanted to connect with you or learn more, where would you send them? Well, uh, fschoonmaker.com, S-C-H-O-O-N-M-A-K-E-R, is my website. It is going through an, a little makeover. So if you go there now, you'll find it all kind of foggy. <laughs> but um, I, I recognize that Schoonmaker is not one of those household words. So it, after this is over, when people can't find the paper they wrote it on, <laughs> then which despite my organizational skills would be me, uh, just, you know, use a search engine and write the last crystal trilogy and you can track me down. Very cool. And I'll make sure I have all these different places I found you <laughs> in there, in there, so that in my show notes, so that they can find you easily. So it's good stuff. The, uh, and, and before we finish up, I have two questions I'd like to ask you. I like to ask my guests. And one of, one of the questions goes like this. How do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? Oh, I know that's a really a pertinent question right now. <laughs> because I'm right in the middle of working on on Sid's story, um, which is going to be called, I think it's going to end up, it may be a trilogy as well. I don't know. Maybe I think in threes. <laughs> right now, the first one uh, I've tentatively titled um, Sid Johnson and the Slave Stealers. Um, <clears throat> but um, I've, I really have reached a point, you know, where I'm 
crafting that book. You know, I know what it is and I'm, I'm tidying it up and, you know, making it really work. And I'm in the middle of doing so many other things right now that sometimes I cannot take time to sit down and work on it. I have to do other things. So I, I've made my peace with that a long time ago. Um, I consider it kind of like working on a, a patchwork quilt. You know, there are a lot of different patches and, and eventually you get it all put together. And so you pick it up and you work on it when you can, and then you put it down. Your mind is always working on it. You know, you subconsciously, even if you're working on um, three or four other projects that require the same kind of thinking. So I just say, you know, if something isn't working right now and you start to be discouraged, then maybe you do need to just put it down and work on something else and then come back. Um, or maybe you have to because circumstances are such that, you know, you can't get to it. So rather than beating yourself up, just put it down, pick it up again. I like that. That's cool. It's good, good advice. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just need to walk away or you know, <laughs> take a break. I think that's awesome. Good stuff. The uh, last question I have for you is this. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? You know, I was thinking about that, and I would be naming the teachers that I had. I didn't go to kindergarten. We didn't have it when I was a little girl. Um, at least where I lived, we didn't. Um, it, it, I would just name my elementary and middle school and high school, <laughs> nice. <and> college, <laughs> That's awesome. school teachers. I have so many people to whom I am deeply grateful. Uh, you know, from Mrs. Mars, my first grade teacher, through um, the people who mentored me in my doctoral program. Um, I would I would have to say that if I go back to probably the teacher who had the most influence on me, it would be my mother. Uh, both my parents were teachers. But I remember as a little child, uh, my mother pulling out her old school box of stuff and setting up this little Robinson Crusoe village, you know, and, and just being so enamored of that. And she says that she put it up because we didn't pay any attention. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you know, something was being struck. So, yeah, I, I would like to just name them all because they are, you know, they have been so formative uh, in my growing up. That's so cool. You know, it's it, when you say it that way, because it's, I think about any number because there's any number of them that have impact impacted me and you know, it's neat to hear other people say the same thing that uh, you have a number of them well, that's just cool so awesome i appreciate it and francis thanks so much for talking with me today the last crystal trilogy is fun adventurous and a great read each of your books the black alabaster box the red abalone shell and the last crystal are wonderful stories i love the way you write and wishing the best in all you do and good luck and take care well thank you it's great fun chatting with you Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.